You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Without further ado, I'll introduce our next reader, Kim Stanley Robinson. Thank you, Terry, for that and for this opportunity. Um, the, the Lucky Strike comes from um, a long time ago, and I don't recall ever having read it, uh, read from it. And oh, really? Uh, no. <laughs> um, it just came from so early in my career that I wasn't doing readings on any kind of a regular basis. And so, um, it, unless I'm mistaken, this is going to be a first attempt. Now, there, there's also another story in here called um, A Sensitive Dependence on Initial Conditions that is a kind of collection of second thoughts about what happened in the Lucky Strike uh, and about the nature of history and about alternative histories. So it was a neat thing here uh, to bulk this little volume up by adding uh, sensitive dependence to the original short story. And they're probably um, about seven or eight years apart in terms of their writing. But they need to be together, actually. They, the, well, I don't know. Letting a writer have second thoughts about an idea is probably a, a, a bad <laughs> notion. Um, but in this case, I couldn't help myself. So uh, what I and so what I'm going to try here, since they're both rather long and impossible to read um, in full, is to try to read passages from each of them, and I'm hoping that um, the the um, there'll be about 20 minutes from the Lucky Strike and about 10 minutes from Sensitive Dependence, and I will try I will I will mark the borderland for you so that you know how. Um, close you are to the end of this because <laughs> it could go on. It's a kind of an experiment. It's sort of, you know how when your CD player begins to skip on you and it just bounces through the, the entire CD in a couple of minutes and you get little snatches of music. Well, that's, that's what I'm going to try. So let's give it a shot. By the time the sound of the explosion struck them, they knew that no one in the plane had survived. Black smoke towered into white sky. Some welder stateside had kept flame to metal a second less than usual, or something equally minor, equally trivial, and that had made all the difference. They left the jeep and hiked east over a narrow track. A fairly large circle of trees was burning. The fire trucks were already there. Skulls stood beside January, his expression bleak. That was the whole first team, he said. I know, said January. He was still in shock, in imagination crushed, incinerated destroyed. Skulls shook his head. He was going to name the plane after his mother, he said to the ground. He told me that just this morning. He was going to call it Enola Gay. The next day, the chaplain gave a memorial service, and on the morning after that, Colonel Skulls looked in the door of their hut right after mess. Briefing at 11, he announced. His face was haggard. Be there early. Fitch, January, Matthews, come with me. The rest of the men sat on their bunks and watched them wordlessly. January followed Fitch and Matthews out of the hut. I've spent most of the night on the radio with General LeMay, Skulls said. We've decided you're to be the first crew to make a strike. 
Think you can do it? Of course, Fitch replied. Watching him, January understood why they had chosen him to replace Tibbets. Fitch was like the old bull. He had that same ruthlessness, the young bull. Yes, sir, Matthew said. Scholes was looking at him. Sure, January said, not wanting to think about it. Sure. His heart was pounding directly on his sternum. The briefing hut, one of the longer quonsets, was completely surrounded by MPs holding carbons. Gosh, Matthew said, subdued by the sight. Inside, it was already smoky. Skulls came in with several men January didn't recognize, went to the front. The chatter died, and all the smoke plumes ribboned steadily into the air. Skulls said, the target cities are Hiroshima, Kokura, and Nagasaki. The weapon we are going to deliver was successfully tested stateside a couple weeks ago, and now we've got orders to drop it on the enemy. I'll let Captain Shepard tell you more. Shepard walked to the blackboard. He said, the bomb you're going to drop is something new in history. We think it will knock out everything within four miles. Now the room was completely still. This is a film of the only test we've made, Shepard said. January focused on the pin-like object sticking out of the desert floor off against the hills. It was between eight and ten miles from the camera, he judged. The screen went white for a second, filling even their room with light. When the picture returned, the desert floor was filled with a white bloom of fire. The fireball coalesced, and then quite suddenly it leaped off the earth all the way into the stratosphere, by God, like a tracer bullet leaving a machine gun, trailing a whitish pillar of smoke behind it. The pillar gushed up, and a growing ball of smoke billowed outward, capping the pillar. There it stood. The picture flickered, and then the screen went white again, as if the camera had melted or that part of the world had come apart. January felt the air suck in and out of his open mouth. Shepard said, it's big, all right. And the flash you saw at the beginning was hotter than the sun. One of the intelligence officers passed out tinted goggles like welder's glasses. January took his and twiddled the opacity dial. That night, January writhed over his sheets in the hot, wet vegetable darkness in that frightening half-sleep when you sometimes know you were dreaming but can do nothing about it, and he dreamed he was walking. Pall of black smoke over everything. The city has fallen into the streets. Ah, it's the end of the world. In a park, he finds shade and cleared ground. People crouch under bushes like frightened animals. The river red and black figures crowd into steaming water. There are no human cries. The people are suffering in silence, a black face with no eyes. In a field, men are pulling potatoes out of the ground that have been baked well enough to eat. He shares one with them. January sat up, and the wet, rough sheet clung to his skin. His heart felt crushed between lungs, desperate for air. He grabbed his cigarettes and jumped off the bunk, hurried out into the compound. Trembling, he lit up, started pacing around. For a moment, he worried that the idiot psychiatrist might see him, but then he dismissed the idea. They were all asleep. A couple of disjointed days later, just after midnight of August 9th, he found himself preparing for the strike. How odd were the everyday motions of getting dressed when you were off to demolish a city to end 100,000 lives. January found himself examining his hands, his boots, the cracks in the linoleum. 
When they got to altitude, January climbed past Fitch and McDonald to the bombardier seat and placed his parachute on it, sat down, leaned back. The roar of the four engines packed around him like cotton batting. He was on the flight, nothing to be done about it now. The heavy vibration was a comfort. He liked the feel of it there in the nose of the plane. He was on the flight, no way out. Now he realized how easy it would have been to get out of it. He could have just said he didn't want to. The simplicity of it appalled him. Who gave a damn what the psychiatrist or Tibbets or anyone else thought compared to this? Now there was no way out. It was a comfort in a way. Now he could stop worrying, stop thinking that he had any choice. The bomb bay was unheated and the cold air felt good. He stood facing the bomb. Stone was sitting on the floor of the bay. Shepard was laid out under the bomb, reaching into it. On a rubber pad next to stone were tools, plates, several cylindrical blocks. Shepard pulled back, sat up, sucked a scraped knuckle. He shook his head ruefully. I don't dare wear gloves with this one. January was reminded of auto mechanics on the oily floor of a garage working under a car. He had spent a few years doing that himself after his family moved to Vicksburg. Hiroshima was a river town. Stone connected wires, then helped Shepard install two more plates. Good old American know-how, January thought. There was Shepard, a scientist, putting together a bomb like he was changing oil and plugs. January felt a tight rush of rage at the scientists who had designed the bomb. They had worked on it for over a year. Had none of them in all that time ever stopped to think what they were doing? <coughs> but none of them had to drop it. January turned to hide his face. The bomb looked like a big, long trash can, with fins at one end and little antenna at the other. Just a bomb, he thought. Damn it, it's just another bomb. Shepard stood and patted it gently. We've got a live one now. Never a thought about what it would do. January hurried by the man, afraid that hatred would crack his shell and give him away. The pistol strapped to his belt caught on the hatchway, and he imagined shooting Shepard, shooting Fitch and McDonald, and plunging the controls forward so that the lucky strike tilted and spun down into the sea like a spent tracer bullet, like a plane broken by flak following the arc of all human ambition. Nobody would ever know what had happened to them, and their trash can would be dumped at the bottom of the Pacific, where it belonged. He could even shoot everyone and parachute out and perhaps be rescued by one of the super dumbos following them. The thought passed, and remembering at January, squinted with disgust. N not for anything would he be able to shoot these men, who, if not friends, were at least companions. They passed for friends. They meant no harm. Maybe he could sabotage something, cut a line somewhere. They were over Iwo Jima, three more hours to Japan. Dawn had turned the whole vault of the sky pink. The ocean below was a glittering blue plain, marbled by a pattern of puffy pink cloud. It seemed they flew at the very upper edge of the atmosphere. His parachute slipped under him. Readjusting it, he imagined putting it on, sneaking back to the central escape hatch under the navigator's cabin, opening the hatch. He could be out of the plane and gone before anybody noticed. Leave it up to them. They could bomb or not, but it wouldn't be January's doing. Earphones crackled. Shepard said, Lieutenant Stone has now armed the bomb, and I can tell you all what we are carrying. Aboard with us is the world's first atomic bomb. Well, not exactly, January thought. The first one went off in New Mexico. Splitting atoms. January had heard the term before. Tremendous energy in every atom, Einstein had said. Break one, and they had seen the result on film. Shepard was talking about radiation, which brought back more to January. 
energy released in the form of x-rays, killed by x-rays. It would be against the Geneva Convention if they had thought of it. January found his hands clenched together on the headrest of the bombsite. He felt as if he had a fever. In the harsh wash of morning light, the skin on the backs of his hands appeared slightly translucent. The whorls in the skin looked like the delicate patterning of waves on the sea's surface. His hands were made of atoms. A person was a bomb that could blow up the world. January felt that latent power stir in him, pulsing with every hard hot knock, heart knock. What beings they were, and in what, in what a blue expanse of a world. Lucky Strike tilted up and began the long climb to bombing altitude. On the horizon, the clouds lay over a green island, Japan. Surely it had gotten hotter. Damn it, he thought. Damn it, think of something different. The last hornblower story he had read, how would he get out of this? The round O of his mother's face as she ran in and saw his burned arm. The Mississippi, mud brown behind its levees. Abruptly, he shook his head, face twisted in frustration and despair, aware at last that no possible avenue of memory would serve as an escape for him now. For now, there was no part of his life that did not apply to the situation he was in, and no matter where he cast his mind, it was going to shore up against the hour facing him. Fitch gave him the altimeter readings to dial into the bombsite. Matthews gave him wind speeds. Sweat got in his eye, and he blinked furiously. The sun rose behind them like an atomic bomb. Broken plans jumbled together in his mind. His breath was short, his throat dry. Uselessly and repeatedly, he damned the scientists, damned Truman, damned the Japanese for causing the whole mess in the first, first place. They had brought this on themselves. Remember Pearl. Now it was coming back to them with a vengeance, and they deserved it. And they were over the inland sea. The island ahead was draped more heavily than the sea by clouds, and again January's heart leaped with the idea that weather would cancel the mission. But they did deserve it. January, are you ready? Fitch asked. I'm just waiting, January said. The bomb site stood between his legs. A switch on its side would start the bombing sequence. The bomb would not leave the plane immediately upon the flick of the switch, but would drop after a 15-second radio tone warned the following planes. The bomb site was adjusted accordingly. Through the site, a grouping of rooftops and gray roads was just visible between broken clouds. Around it, green forest. All right, Matthew said. Here we go. Keep it right on this heading, Captain. January, we'll stay at 231 miles an hour. And the same heading, Fitch said. January, she's all yours. Everyone else, make sure your goggles are on and be ready for the turn. January's world contracted to the view through the bomb site, a stippled field of cloud and forest. Over a small range of hills, and into Hiroshima's watershed. The broad river was mud brown, the land pale, hazy green, the growing network of roads a flat gray. Swimming into the site came the city proper, narrow islands thrusting into a dark blue bay. Under the crosshairs, the city moved, island by island, cloud by cloud. January had stopped breathing. His fingers were rigid as stone on the switch. And there was Aoyai Bridge. It slid right under the crosshairs, a tiny T, right in a gap in the clouds. January's fingers crushed the switch. Deliberately, he took a breath, held it. Clouds swam under the crosshairs and then the next island. Almost there, he said calmly into his microphone. Steady. Now that he was committed, his heart was humming like the rights. He counted to 10. Now, flowing under the crosshairs were clouds alternating with green forest, leaden roads. 
I've turned the switch, but I'm not getting a tone, he croaked into the mic. His right hand held the switch firmly in place. Fitch was shouting something. Matthew's voice cracked across it. Flipping it back and forth, January shouted, shielding the bombsite with his body from the eyes of the pilots. But still, oh, wait a second. He pushed the switch down. A low hum filled his ears. That's it. It started. But where will it land, Matthew said. Hold steady, January said. Lucky Strike shuddered and lofted up 10 or 20 feet. January twisted to look down, and there was the bomb flying just below the plane. Then with a wobble, it fell away. The plane banked right and dove so hard that the centrifugal force threw January against the plexiglass. Several thousand feet lower, Fitch leveled it out, and they hurtled north. January struggled upright. He reached for the welder's goggles, but they were no longer on his head. He couldn't find them. How long has it been, he said. Thirty seconds, Matthews replied. January clamped his eyes shut. The blood in his eyelids lit up red and then white. On the earphones, a clutter of voices, oh my god. The plane bounced and tumbled, metallically shrieking. January pressed himself off the plexiglass. The plane rocked again, bounced out of control. This is it, January thought. End of the world. I guess that solves my problem. He opened his eyes and found he could still see. The engine still roared. The props spun. Those were the shock waves from the bomb, Fitch called. We're okay now. By God, look at that. Will you look at that son of a bitch go? January looked. The cloud layer below had burst apart, and a black column of smoke billowed up from a core of red fire. Already the top of the column was at their height. Exclamations of shock clattered painfully in January's ears. He stared at the fiery base of the cloud, at the scores of fires feeding into it. Suddenly he could see past the cloud, and his fingernails cut into his palms. Through a gap in the clouds, he saw it clearly. The Delta, the Six Rivers, there off to the left of the Tower of Smoke, the city of Hiroshima, untouched. A lot happens after that. <laughs> the court-martial lasted two days. The verdict was guilty of disobeying orders in combat and of giving aid and comfort to the enemy. The sentence was death by firing squad. January would not live to see the years that followed, so he would never know what came of his action. In any case, he would not have been able to imagine the course of the post-war years. That the world would quickly become an armed camp pitched on the edge of atomic war, he might have predicted. But he never would have guessed that so many people would join a January society. He would never know of the effect this society had on Dewey during the Korean crisis, and never know of the society's successful campaign for the test ban treaty, and never learn that thanks in part to the society and its allies, a treaty would be signed by the great powers that would reduce the number of atomic bombs year by year until there were none left. Frank January would never know any of that. But in that moment on his cot, looking into the eyes of young priest Patrick Getty, he guessed an inkling of it. In his last week, everyone who met him carried away the same impression, that of a calm, quiet man, angry at Truman and others, but in a withdrawn and matter-of-fact way. On the morning that they woke him at dawn to march him out to the hastily constructed execution shed, his MP shook his hand. The priest was with him as he smoked a final cigarette, and they prepared to put the hood over his head. January looked at him calmly. They load one of the guns with a blank cartridge, right? Yes, Getty said. So each man in the squad can imagine he may not have shot me. Yes, I guess that's right. A tight and unhumorous smile was January's last expression. He threw down the cigarette, ground it out, poked the priest in the arm. But I know. I had the blank. Then the mask slipped back into place for good, 
making the hood redundant, and with a firm step, January went to the wall. One might have said he was at peace. Okay. That is the end of the lucky strike. But let me continue for a few more minutes with uh, the sequel, A Sensitive Dependence on Initial Conditions. In July of 1945, Colonel Tibbetts was ordered to demonstrate his crew's ability to deliver an atomic weapon by flying a test mission in the Western Pacific. During the takeoff, Tibbetts shut down both propellers on the right wing to show that if this occurred during an armed takeoff, he would still be able to control the plane. The strain of this maneuver, however, caused the inboard left engine to fail, and in the emergency return to Tinian, the Enola Gay crashed, killing everybody aboard. A replacement crew was sent, chosen from Tibbet's squadron and was sent to bomb Hiroshima on August 9, 1945. During the run over Hiroshima, the bombardier, Captain Frank January, deliberately delayed the release of the bomb so that it missed Hiroshima by some 10 miles. Another mission later that week encountered cloud cover and missed Kokura by accident. January was court-martialed and executed for disobeying orders in battle. The Japanese, having seen the explosions and evaluated the explosion sites, surrendered. January decided to miss the target because he had a visionary dream in which he saw the results of the bombing. He had not been in combat for over a year. He was convinced the war was over. He had been in London during the Blitz. He disliked his plane's pilot. He hated Paul Tibbetts. He was a loner, older than his fellow squadron members. He had read the Horatio Hornblower stories in the Saturday Evening Post when he was a boy. He once saw a truck crash into a car and watched the truck driver in the aftermath. He was burned on the arm by stove oil when a child. He had an imagination. <coughs> the inboard and left engine on the Enola Gay failed because a worker at the Wright manufacturing plant had failed to keep his welding torch flame on the weld for the required 20 seconds. He stopped three seconds too soon. He stopped three seconds too soon because he was tired. He was tired because the previous night he had stayed up late drinking with friends. In 1948, President Truman lost to Thomas Dewey in a close election that was slightly influenced by a political group called the January Society. The Korean conflict was settled by negotiation, and in February of 1956, a treaty was signed in Geneva banning the use and manufacture of nuclear <coughs> weapons. But go on. In November of 1956, conflict broke out in the Middle East between Egypt and Israel, and Britain and France quickly entered the conflict to protect their interests in the Suez Canal. President Dewey, soon to be replaced by President-elect Dwight Eisenhower, asked Britain and France to quit the conflict. His request was ignored. The war spread through the Middle East. In December, the Soviet army invaded West Germany. The United States declared war on the Soviet Union. China lost assaults in Indochina, and the Third World War was underway. Both the United States and the Soviet Union quickly assembled a number of atomic bombs, and in the first weeks of 1957, Jerusalem, Berlin, Bonn, pra Paris, London, Warsaw, Leningrad, Prague, Budapest, Beirut, Amman, Cairo, Moscow, Vladivostok, Tokyo, Peking, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., and Princeton, New Jersey, hit by a bomb targeted for New York, were destroyed. Loss of life in that week and the year following was estimated at 100 million people. History is a particle accelerator. Energies are not always normal. We live in a condition of asymptotic freedom and every history is possible. Each bombardier has to choose. 
Or in June of 1945, seven of the scientists who had worked on the Manhattan Project submitted a document called the Frank Report. The Frank Report called for a demonstration of the bomb before observers from many countries, including Japan. The scientific panel decided this was a possible option and passed the report on to the committee, which passed it on to the White House. The buck stops here. Truman read the report, decided to invite James Frank, Leo Zillard, Niels Bohr, and Albert Einstein to the White House to discuss the issue. After a week's intense debate, Truman instructed Stimson to contact the Japanese leadership and arrange a demonstration drop to be made on one of the uninhabited islands in the Itsu Shichito archipelago south of Tokyo Bay. An atomic bomb was exploded on Udone Shima on August 24, 1945. The mushroom cloud was visible from Tokyo. Films of the explosion were shown to the Emperor Hirohito. The Emperor instructed his government to surrender, which it did on August 31st, one day before Truman had declared he was going to begin bombing Japanese cities. Truman won the election of 1948. In 1950, North Korean troops invaded the South until a series of so-called Shima blasts, each closer to the North's advance forces, stopped them at the 38th parallel. In 1952, Adlai Stevenson became president and appointed Leo Szilard the first presidential science advisor. In 1956, Szilard was sent to Moscow for a consultation with Khrushchev. This meeting led to the founding of the International Peace Brigade, which sent internationally integrated teams of young people to work in underdeveloped countries and in countries still recovering from World War II. In 1960, John Kennedy was elected president, and he was succeeded in 1968 by his brother Robert. In 1976, in the wake of scandals in the administration, Richard Nixon was elected. And at this point in time, the post-war period is usually considered to have ended. The century itself came to a close without any further large wars. The great man theory considers particles. Historical materialism considers waves. The wave-particle duality, confirmed many times by experiment, assures us that neither theory can be the complete truth. Neary, neither theory will serve as the covering law of history. But it makes sense to seek a science of history, to try to formulate some general historical laws. What would these general laws look like? Here are some examples. If two armies are equally well-led and well-armed, and one has an enormous numerical superiority, the other one will never win. A privileged group of people will never relinquish privilege voluntarily. Empires rise, flourish, fall, and are replaced in a cyclical pattern. A nation's fortunes depend on its success in war. A society's culture is determined by its economic system. Belief systems exist to disguise inequality. Lastly, unparalleled in both elegance and power, subsuming many of the examples listed above, power corrupts. So there do seem to be some quite powerful laws of historical explanation, but Consider another one. For want of a nail, the battle was lost. For instance, on July 29th, 1945, a nomad in Kyrgyz walked out of his yurt and stepped on a butterfly. For lack of the butterfly flapping its wings, the wind in the area blew slightly less. A low pressure front therefore moved over East China more slowly than it would have. And so, on August 6th, when the Enola Gay flew over Hiroshima, it was covered by 90% cloud cover instead of 50%. This kind of phenomenon is known as the butterfly effect, and it is a serious problem for all other models of historical explanation, meaning trouble for you and for me.
The scientific term for it is sensitive dependence on initial conditions. It's an aspect of chaos theory first studied by the meteorologist Edward Lorenz, who, while running computer simulations of weather patterns, discovered that the slightest change in the initial conditions of the simulation would quickly lead to completely different weather. Consider, Captain Frank January chose to miss Hiroshima. Ten years later, nuclear weapons were universally banned. Eleven years later, local conflicts in the Middle East erupted into general war and nuclear weapons were quickly reassembled and used. For it is not easy to forget knowledge once it is learned. There is no going back. And so by 1990, in this particular world, the bomb cities were rebuilt. The western industrial nations were rich, the southern developing nations were poor, multinational corporations ruled the world's economy, the Soviet bloc was falling apart, gigantic sums of money were spent on armaments. By the year 2056, there was very little to distinguish this world from the one in which January had dropped the bomb, in which Tibbets had bombed Hiroshima, in which Tibbets had made a demonstration, in which Tibbets had bombed Kokura. Perhaps a, a sum over histories bunches the probabilities. Is this likely? We don't know. We are particles moving in a wave. The wave breaks. No math can predict which bubbles will appear where. But there is a sum over histories. Chaotic systems fall into patterns, following the pull of strange attractors. Paul Tibbets flies towards Hiroshima. The nomad steps out of his yurt. Frank January flies towards Hiroshima. The nomad stops in his yurt. You are flying towards Hiroshima. You are the bombardier. You have been given the assignment two days before. You know what the bomb will do. You do not know what you will do. You have to decide. And in the act of deciding, the mind attempts the work of the historian, breaking the potential events down into their component parts, enumerating conditions, seeking covering laws that will allow a prediction of what will follow from the variety of possible choices. Alternative futures branch like dendrites away from the present moment, shifting chaotically, pulled this way and that by attractors dimly perceived. Probable outcomes emerge from those less likely. And then, in the myriad clefts of the quantum mind, a mystery. The choice is made. We have to choose. That is life in time. Now the rich fly over the world as if in a plane. We are that removed from the earth. We are that dependent on the machines still working. The poor live everywhere below, still on the earth, impossible to miss. Drop your bomb anywhere, crash your plane anywhere. You're sure to hit them. We are flying towards Hiroshima. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.